What's up, everyone? This is episode 112 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Speaking of social media, you might have seen me post pictures from a Pacers Magic game I went to in Orlando a couple Fridays ago, and I intended to talk about that last week, but I had to shuffle things around a little bit last minute, so I figure I'll lead with that this week. Um, So this was my first live NBA game in a long, long time, and I usually try to make it to a couple of games per year. It just depends on how many times the Pacers are in town. Well, between COVID restrictions and the new schedule, the Pacers hadn't played in Orlando in something like 14 or 15 months. And obviously, I'm not counting the bubble games, which were all at Disney because uh, those weren't open to the public. Now, I don't have a lot to say about the game itself. I could probably do an entire episode breaking down the Pacers' struggles this year, uh, but who really wants to hear that? Anyway, though, the Pacers won this game, which was nice. I haven't seen a lot of Pacers wins lately, but um, the game itself was a bit of a snoozer, but it was just nice to get back into an arena and watch for some of the things that are hard to see on TV. And that includes all of the new COVID protocols. And I've had some people ask about those, which is part of why I chose to talk about it on air. I was curious about this as well. Well, there were a couple major differences from the usual experience. So we drove to the game, a friend and I, and before you entered the arena, you had no choice but to download an app on your phone called the Clear Health Pass. And this was probably in the fine print somewhere when I bought my ticket, but nobody actually reads that. So I didn't know. And um, this app prompted my friend and I, we had to scan our driver's licenses front and back. And we had to answer a series of COVID related questions, you know, Have you been exposed to somebody with COVID? Do you have symptoms? That kind of stuff. And I, you know, I don't feel like the questions themselves really kept anyone in the arena safe, but I suppose it's more of a legal thing. The magic have to cover themselves. That's fine. So once we got into the arena, we went to grab a couple of sodas. There's no cups anymore. It's just bottles. We didn't get any food, but I I think the menus are pretty stripped down now as well. Um, Our seats for this game were in the upper level. And there were a few lower level seats available, but the prices were astronomical. Um, so we were upper level. I try to get in the middle of the arena, though, a midcourt still. Um, not bad seats. Our row had probably around 30 seats, and all but eight of them were strapped off. And when I say that, I mean physically they had a strap wrapped around each seat. Um, so you couldn't sit in it, even if you wanted to. And I, I think about how long it would take you know, a crew of people to do that. That's, that's pretty wild. But, um, so, you know, most of the seats were strapped off. The remaining eight seats in that row were in pairs of two spaced out over the duration of the row. Um, and then there was a guy, there was an usher in the front of our section that had a sign reminding people to keep their mask on. He seemed pretty militant about it, which, um, you know, I don't know if every usher had that level of enthusiasm, but I had no problems with it. I appreciated it. It really wasn't a big deal. Overall, I thought it was a pretty safe experience, and I know some of you are are probably itching to go to an NBA game, and and some of your local arenas might be opening up soon. I'm not going to tell you what to do or whether you should go or not. You've got to make that judgment on your own, 
But like I said earlier, I was very happy to be back. All right, enough about me. On to the card content. I've got a jam-packed episode for you today. I've got a quick update on the national that I want to share with you. I've got a good batch of mail that I'm excited to talk about. And then in the latter portion of the show, I'm going to recap a card show I went to a couple weeks ago, which will also segue into some continuing thoughts on the current hobby climate. And long story short, I think a lot of us could benefit from hitting the reset button. And I'll explain myself more in that segment, so you'll want to stick around for that. Okay, let's start with a quick update on the National. I know a lot of people have already booked their travel for this year's show. At the same time, a lot of people are are holding off, um, which I'm in that second group. I have all intentions of going if it actually happens, but I don't really want to book anything until it actually does. And I know, you know, I might be costing myself some money there, but... I also might be saving myself some hassle, so it's, you know, it's a risk. It's a risk either way. Um, You might have heard that there was supposed to be a show in the same venue in the first week of June. That show has already been canceled, so I don't feel great about the Nationals' chances there either, but nonetheless, we got an official update via the show's social media, and it reads as follows. It says... The National continues to get questions and hear rumors about the upcoming 41st National scheduled for July 28th through August 1st at the Donald E. Stevens Convention Center in Chicago. We are at the mercy of the Illinois Department of Public Health, the IDPH, which has published metrics describing when large conventions may be held in the state. We know that attendees and exhibitors are waiting to make arrangements for travel and hotels for the National. Based upon this, we will continue to follow the IDPH guidelines and make a decision on the July dates on or around June 1st. Should the national be postponed, we are currently looking at October dates as a backup. Exhibitors and attendees will have the choice of a rolling over booth deposits or ticket revenue to the postponed show or may request a refund. Um, So in other words, we'll know for sure in about a month and a half. And this is the same thing we went through in 2020. You might remember, um, you know, originally they postponed it to December, then they canceled it for good. You know, I know at this point it's easier said than done, but in my head I'm thinking, you know, just move the show to Florida for a year as if they can just, you know, move it and there's no contracts or anything, right? Uh, Maybe that's just me being a little selfish, but... Uh, In the meantime, I wouldn't be surprised to see bigger shows keep popping up like Dallas. And then I know there's a new show coming up in Wisconsin as well. If the National really doesn't happen this year, I think it's safe to say that someone is going to try and organize something. Okay, on to the mail. I've got four cards that I'm going to talk about today. The first three are from my favorite era of basketball cards, which would be the early to mid-2000s. And coincidentally, I'm going to talk about one card from each of the three major brands of that era. So the first card I want to talk about today is from a set I mentioned all the way back on episode 88, which was about 2005-2006 Topps products. And I talked a lot about how they were um, really thinking outside the box that year, or they were trying at least. doesn't mean everything succeeded, but this card is definitely representative of that approach. It is a Dwayne Wade player-worn dress tie relic 
numbered to 99 from a Topps Finest set called Dress for Success. And I, I'm pretty sure I've said this on here before. I don't like Dwayne Wade. Um, I don't like him at all. I've always thought he was a dirty player. And um, that really tainted his contributions to the game for me. Nevertheless, um, he's in a lot of stuff that I collect. So I had a card from this set already. But it's a scrub. I think I have Joey Graham. I'm not 100% sure. It's either Joey Graham or Orion Green. So I wanted a meaningful player. And I told people before, I said, this checklist is absolute garbage. And a couple of people have fact-checked me on that. A couple of friends. And they looked it up and they said, you know, wow, you weren't kidding. No, no, that wasn't hyperbole. It's guys like I mentioned Joey Graham, Orion Green, uh, I think Charlie Villanueva. Wade, Dwayne Wade is literally the only good player in this set. And combine that with the fact that he was a top spokesman in this era. Uh, this was one that I knew I eventually wanted to add to my collection just because it was something different. And, um, you know, I am so attached to that 0506 tops year. It's just a lot of unique stuff that I, I really appreciated. Um, so I saw this one pop up on eBay. I made a series of offers for it. You know, pretty simple story. There's a refractor version on there right now that I posted on my Twitter, but the regular version number to 99 was good enough for me. If you want to see that, I think I posted a picture of it on my social media sometime last weekend. Okay, the next card I want to talk about is a pretty big addition to my Ron Artest collection. Actually, that's an understatement. Um... It's a 2005-2006 Upper Deck Ultimate Collection Ultimate Dual Signatures card numbered to 25 of Ron Artest and who would they pair him with? There's a number of people they could have paired him with. On this card, he's paired with Dennis Rodman. And so I think this card is significant for a number of reasons. First, the combination of players is pretty cool and I think it's safe to say this is not a random pairing. This was the year after the brawl. Ron had developed a reputation of being a troublemaker. And those of you that have seen the footage, you might also remember that he wore the number 91 during the brawl season, which was the same number as Dennis Rodman. So I think Ron really opened the door for people to make those comparisons. And it's not surprising that Upper Deck tried to capitalize on it. I know they, they had another card later on with um, Ron Artest and Bill Lane Beer. Right? That was not a coincidence. So um, as far as Artest and Rodman, though, Panini copied this pairing later on, but by that point, Ron was a Laker, and they were both sticker autos, and they were on opposite sides of the card. So I, you know, that one doesn't appeal to me as much. So I think this upper deck card is way cooler. Now, in addition to the connection to Rodman, I appreciate this card because Ron had... By my count, at least to my knowledge, four on-card autographs in a Pacers uniform, with the only solo one being his um, Ultimate Logoman 101, which I have. He had a card in the AKA set where he signed a nickname instead of his own, which I've always thought, it looks like Pac-Man, which I never heard him called Pac-Man. Um, and then he had a UD Trilogy auto with Danny Granges and Sarunas Yesikavagis, which I actually still need that one. I think it's numbered to 40 if you have it. Please, please, please let me know. I'd love to uh, make a move for it. And then, of course, he has this duel with Dennis Rodman. 
Um, I've seen copies of this card show up a couple times in the past, and I didn't grab them for several reasons. Like many of our test cards from that season, I refused to buy them out of spite. Um, because by the time the card came out, Ron had asked to be traded. You know, obviously, I've, I've softened on that stance and, and doubled down on my Ron collection. And then on, on top of that, there was just a lot of competition where the card was out of my price range. Um, or I wasn't able to compete with some of the Rodman collectors. There are a lot more of those than there are our test collectors. But um, coincidentally, it was a Rodman collector that helped me acquire this particular copy. Because at some point in the last year, I reached out to Adam. You might know him as the Rodman Gallery on Instagram. I met up with him at the 2019 National. He's always been super friendly to me and super helpful whenever I had questions about anything. So at one point, I reached out to him and just said, Hey, you know, I know you have a copy of this card. If you know of anyone else that has a copy or any, you know, any copy that becomes available, please let me know. And last week, he messaged me with a picture of this copy and said something to the effect of, Hey, I think this is about to become available if you're interested. And then he told me the range that he thought the seller would be looking for. Well, this was a card that I really wanted, but my offer was only going to be about 75% of the cost that the seller was hoping to get. And I communicated that with Adam. I just said, look, you know, here's, here's what I'm able to offer. You know, I don't know if that's going to cover it. I don't know if he would consider it or not, but this is my offer. And, um, you know, he said, well, you know, I don't, I don't think that's going to work. I messaged him a slightly higher offer, but at that point, I figured I would just have to let it go. And uh, not long after that, Adam messages me and says, hey, if your offer still stands, the card is yours. And he linked me up with the seller so I could complete the purchase. So uh, he was kind of cryptic about the whole thing. But anyway, I, I, you know, I made the transaction. And um, after everything went through, I, I shot Adam a text to thank him for setting this up. And it turns out he had done more than just set this up without telling me he had paid the difference on the card. Um, I thought the seller had accepted my offer. No, Adam just paid the difference, which I didn't mean for him to do at all. And I was floored by the whole situation. I still am. Adam, thank you so much. Um, I, I owe you, right? I'm going to be on the lookout for rare Rodman stuff. I know it's going to be hard to get something out from, you know, before you get it or one of the other Rodman collectors get it. But um, I definitely want to pay this forward in some capacity. Okay. The next card I want to talk about this week is another Ron Artest card. And, you know, it's funny. I might go months without picking up anything real nice for him. But I've been on a, a good little stretch recently, and, and I'm thankful for that. So this particular card is from the 2004-2005 Fleer Showcase Hot Hands insert set. And I know when you hear Fleer Showcase, you probably think of some of the legacy cards and showcase cards from the 90s. Well, some of the 2000s showcase stuff is really stunning too, and I think it gets ignored. But if you have a chance at some point, check out the base set. Once again, that's 2004-2005. If you aren't familiar with the cards and you end up with one of them, you might even get the impression that it's an insert or a parallel of some sort because they're just super appealing for a regular, you know, old unnumbered base card. 
Well, anyway, the Hot Hands insert set had been around for a while as of this point and in multiple sports. Um, a lot of the cooler ones, you know, it took it took on different forms over the years, but a lot of the cooler ones are die cuts and feature a flame cutout, just like this 2004-2005 card. And if you recall, Dan and I talked about these some in episode 98. So real quick here, I'm going to play a clip for you to refresh your memory. But then in 2004-2005 uh, FLIR Showcase, they brought back Hot Hands as a die-cut basketball insert. Um, and that's it's a tough set. It's got LeBron in it. It's actually got Ron Artest in it, which I haven't seen one in a couple of years. I've been trying to pick one up. I saw one in a lot, and I foolishly let it go, which is ironic because I'm buying a lot of lots now. Okay, so... These are tough for a number of reasons. They were um, one in every 192 hobby packs, and there were 16 packs in a box, so that makes it about one in every 12 boxes. And I, you know, I can't find an unopened case of this product, but a lot of cases in general had uh, around that time, and even now had 12 boxes per case. So I'm going to guess it was a case hit, but I can't really verify that. That's why I miss Worth Point. I used to be able to look up information like that. Um, but anyway, either way, they were very rare. And, um, you know, I haven't seen one of these show up on eBay in several years. The last one I saw was part of a larger lot. I think it was like seven cards for $260. And, you know, I probably would snag that now, but they weren't bigger names in the set. You know, I only wanted the Artest, and I, you know, maybe I would have kept the Ben Wallace as well for my secret Pistons collection, but um, that was it, and that was a pretty steep price at the time. Um, it was going to be hard to find someone to pay up for Mike Bibby or Baron Davis and so on, even though they were case hits, or, or I feel like they were case hits, not all players were in high demand. Um now, of course, times have changed, and it might be doable now, but who knows? A, a lot of people just don't know about this set. Um, anyway, the story of acquiring this one is not nearly as exciting as, I guess, the anticipation or the, you know, the previous story that I, I talked to you about with the Artest Duel, but um, this showed up on eBay. I sent the seller an offer. They countered. I accepted um, but it was good to have kind of closure on this chase and to finally get this thing in hand. And it was also, you know, I've been chasing this card, but it was the first one I've ever seen in hand from that year. And I was thoroughly impressed. Um, I talked about how impressive the base cards were. Well, this is one of those cards that you need to take a short video of instead of a picture because it's a combination of uh, like a die cut and a hologram and a refractor. This is one of those case hits that's manufactured in a way that actually reflects the fact that it's a case hit. You know, there are other things that I've pursued before that are case hits like, you know, status pursuit, right? Those are just like die cuts of the base card. And I like them and they're rare, but this card here, um, it really stands out. Fleer went above and beyond here. Okay, the final card I want to talk about. Um, I mentioned Dan in my episode with Dan with the last card. Well, this uh, mail day also has something to do with him. And this one, it came from him in a roundabout way. Sometime last year, I picked up a binder on eBay that had like um, 600 cards from 1972. 
and probably I would guess 500 of them were from football and the rest was basketball. So I bought them primarily for the basketball because in the product listings, they showed, you know, real small thumbnails of some of the pages. I noticed the tip of Dr. J's Afro on one of the pages. Um, You know, remember, I chased this set for a decade. So I know the pictures pretty well. I know the cards pretty well. And um, I figured, well, you know, it's worth it for even if I get 50 cents for all the other cards, if I have to piece them out, you know, I'll get me me an Irving rookie. So um, when I got the binder in, I didn't know what kind of shape it would be in. Everything looked pretty good from the pictures, but the Irving rookie was in there and it looked pretty clean with the exception of one soft corner. And even that, I didn't feel like it was that bad. It didn't have the the fisheye that you see on a lot of the Irving rookies. The centering was awesome. I sent a picture of it to Dan and he said, you absolutely have to send that to PSA. Well, um, I was pretty hesitant at first. You know, Dan, you know, I don't do the grading thing, yada, yada. Um, But at the same time, I do like my vintage card slabbed. And, um, but I was, I was being stubborn. And finally, Dan said, look, I have an extra voucher. Send this card to me. I'll do the work. I'll enter it in. We'll square up later. Um, and I, and that was back in August. So I, I probably texted this guy every week to say, uh, you know, cause I don't, I don't do grading. I don't understand the steps and all that. I, you know, Dan is what's, what's the, you know, what's the update? What's the status on this thing? And there had been no movement for a long time. Well, um, I get a picture from him this week and it's my Dr. J rookie and it's slabbed as a PSA six, which I'm very excited about. This is my third Irving rookie and by far my nicest copy. Um, one of them's bent in half. One of them has the whole team name scratched out and this one's actually, you know, as it was meant to be. So, um, the more I waited for this thing, the more I realized I'm going to keep it. And, and that's what I am going to do. So there was an upcharge because of, of the grade. And, and I still owed Dan for the voucher. So he sent me a link to a nice Java Chamberlain card on eBay. And he said, that's what I want in return, which I got a good laugh out of that. So I shot the seller a message because you know what? I, I was like, hey, I'm going to buy this card anyway. Let me let me shoot the seller a message and just offer 75%. Uh, I guess that's my my common theme today is I'm offering 75%. Well, um, the seller was happy to do that and uh, everything worked out great. So I want to thank Dan for persuading me to send that and for handling everything. And, and I think the whole thing made for a fun story to tell on today's episode as well. Between me having a card graded by PSA and someone won in a Java Chamberlain card in 2021, your head is probably spinning. But um, I also wanted to talk about these cards today, um, mainly the you know the first three, to emphasize that a lot of this hobby is about playing the long game. And if you're hunting for cards still, hang in there, keep networking, help others out. Things won't always work out, but in some cases they do. And it makes those cards all the more meaningful in the process. Okay, before I move on to today's final segment, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support the show. As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast. One of my goals is to always keep the show itself free. 
So as a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. If you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com and click either the Fanatics link or the eBay logo at the top. Um, shop as planned, and the Wax Museum Podcast gets a small commission in the process. It's a win-win. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hi, this is Alan Siegel, the designer of the NBA logo, and now you're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Okay, so a couple of weekends ago, I set up at one of my local card shows. A friend and I actually split a table. Uh, I guess I should say Tyson and I actually split a table. He always tells me, you never mention me by name on the show. So sorry, Tyson. Um, We ended up in a secondary room, which is a new thing. I like that our local show is growing, but I don't feel like our table got the same kind of access in the spillover room. And then additionally, it made it a little harder to roam around and to do a little shopping for myself. But we made it work. And I did manage to get into the big room for a little bit. Before all was said and done, I walked away with two cards that I'm very happy to own. Two cards from my favorite era of cards, the same era that I talked about for the majority of my mail segment. Um, I don't find a lot of that kind of stuff at shows in general, let alone cards that I want. Uh, I'm going to run through them real quick, and then I'll talk about the other stuff I want to talk about. So the first one is an Oscar Robertson patch numbered to 25 from 2005-2006 SP Authentic. I probably overpaid for this card, but in this case, I'm okay with that because, as I've said before, I'm trying to think of it in terms of trading cards away. It was money I made that day from selling stuff I'm not attached to, stuff that I I feel like I did pretty well on. Um, So that was that. That was the Oscar patch. And then literally like two tables down, right after I found the Oscar, I saw a Reggie Miller, Al Harrington, dual auto from 2004-2005, upper deck hardcourt. It was kind of buried at the bottom of someone's showcase. I could see it, see Reggie's auto peeking through, which... Um, I would recognize that anywhere. And um, when I'm approaching something like this and there's not prices on it, which that's, you know, like 95% of cards at a card show, it seems like. um, And I don't know the comps off the top of my head. I try to quickly come up with a dollar amount that I'd like to own it for. And then, of course, I try to get it for less than that. So I kind of had a range in my head before I asked to see it. The owner hands it to me, and I saw that he had the number 20 written on the back. And I didn't think that was for this card, but I, I showed it to him. I said, hey, you know, this has got the number 20 on it. And he said, yeah, that's what I'm asking for it. Well, that was a no-brainer. And yes, it does sell for more than that. There's no way I'm selling this one, though. I was probably one of the few people that was really happy about Al Harrington being included on that card. So... Anyway, like I said, I don't find a lot of nice PC cards at shows. In this case, I didn't have either. I think I overpaid for one. I think I underpaid for the other. So I guess that balances things out, right? But that's not the main reason I wanted to talk about this show. It's hard for me not to talk about the cards, though. But there were a couple of things I saw at this show that, when combined with some recent conversations I've had with collectors... It makes me think that now might be a really good time for everyone in the hobby to step back and hit the reset button. I think we could be in the beginning stages of a major shift in the current state of the hobby. 
allow me to explain. I like setting up at some of these shows because it forces me to see things through multiple perspectives. I know exactly what a buyer goes through. So I've done that for years. Maybe not at shows, but just in general, I've been buying for a long time. But being on the seller's side gives me a pretty good idea of what people are looking for. It allows me to recognize trends. It gives me a good idea of when things are going to shift. And um, you guys know I'm not big on the whole invest side of things, but this information can be really important and really valuable even if you classify yourself as more of a collector. Like it or not, the cards you're trying to acquire are still part of that same uh, ecosystem. Now, when I set up, my inventory is like 95% raw cards. And in the past, a lot of people liked that because they felt like they could come to my table, buy a card, it left them some meat on the bone, they could get it graded, um, and make some money. Well, as we all know now, a lot of people adopted that approach, and before everything was said and done, PSA found themselves in a, you know, I've heard 10 million, I've heard 12 million card backlog, a substantial backlog. And I've mentioned it on here before, I think the market is largely driven by rookies and by grading. Well, it only makes sense then that if grading stalls, buying will be stalled or people will move that money into other types of purchases. So at this last show, I noticed that a lot of people were hesitant to buy the stuff I have that usually sells well, the raw stuff, because they're now forced to factor in the extra you know, $7,500 um, or whatever, whatever it is extra that it's going to cost them to grade it. They've had to change their whole approach to buying. I think that's smart. I understand that. That's what they should do. But at the same time, people were trying to leverage that against me by saying, well, it's going to cost me a lot more to get it graded now. You know, like somehow I owed them a discount because of that, because they chose an approach that was successful at one point and that every other person in the room was was trying. You know, a lot of people caught on and all of a sudden now it's shifting. And it probably won't surprise you when you hear my response to them. I'll always tell them, hey, no one's forcing you to do that. You know, it's the same thing I try to tell a lot of newer collectors that I see posting on places like Blowout and Reddit. You can still enjoy a card sand slab. You don't have to grade every card. Now, I understand that there are different dimensions to buying and selling cards. I respect that. And maybe some people just like the transactional element of it. Um, but there are so many, you know, for lack of a better phrase, transactional mediums out there in this world. It stuns me how many people that deal with cards right now seemingly don't like cards. And I'm curious to know if there's any other hobby or industry that finds itself in the same situation. I've seen a lot of people make um, parallels from the card industry to the art world um, or comics. But, um, you know, as far as art goes, it's my understanding that the people that are buying and selling these paintings actually appreciate the art to some degree. Now, maybe they wouldn't. If there were 10,000 prints or 10,000 uh, paintings from the same artist, I don't know. But um, we've heard these words hustle and grind nonstop over the course of the last year and a half. And maybe people are finally discovering that if you don't actually like cards, the whole concept of hustling and grinding becomes less hashtag and more reality. And that's not as fun. And I've heard a few people talk about this before, but I think it deserves to be repeated because the idea has kind of gotten lost in the whole shuffle of this great collectibles boom. 
but our whole hobby ecosystem is contingent on people finding some sort of intrinsic value in these little pieces of cardboard, be it rarity, be it the educational side, the historical significance, nostalgia, emotional ties, and so on and so on. There are a number of reasons you can like cards, and only you can determine that for yourself. So, you know, if you're just in this right now because you've made a lot of money over the last year, uh, no, first off, I'm not here, this is not an indictment of any kind, but I think it might be time to hit the reset button. And I'm not telling you to leave. I'm not even trying to hint that you should leave. In fact, I want all different types of people here for the long run. I want to help ensure that this hobby and this industry has a healthy future. But if if you are this person, you have to ask yourself, what do you do if your cash cow gets sick and dies? Especially if that cash cow is grading. One of the big selling points of grading is that it allows people to take a very liquid asset and differentiate it from some of the others. Do you now, you know, send your cards to HGA and let them vomit different colors all over the label? I don't know. You know, that's not my decision to make. Um, or what if 20,000 people decide that their identical pictures of guys like Luca and Zion are just that? Identical little pictures. Or if someone decides that their identical picture, but numbered to 199, is still just that, the same little picture. Because if no one actually values or connects with the base card or the original card, how does that really reflect on the variation? Or even if we look at this stuff that isn't so liquid, if the monetary value disappears, do you like what you're left with? Um, so if you haven't realized it by now, the whole grading backlog is a huge disruptor in the hobby ecosystem, and it's going to affect everyone living there, whether they actually utilize grading or not. So my suggestion to you today, if you haven't done so already, you might want to hit the reset button. Consider how all of these things will affect you, if they haven't already, and modify your approach going forward. Now, similarly, I've talked to a lot of collectors lately that um, they've indicated they're feeling burnout right now. And keep in mind, these are largely people that already have an understanding of why they like or why they value cards. And if you find yourself in this situation, or even if you think you might be getting to that point, I would also suggest that you take a step back and hit the reset button. Go back to the things that drew you in, or go out on a limb and try something new. Um, take some time to talk with other collectors. Ask them about the things that keep them going. Um, ask them about the things that excite them. And I'm, I'm not saying just do one of these. If I were you, I would try multiple things. And in the process, that might reignite some of those same feelings in you. I've talked about card shows already, but that's one of the things that I really enjoy about shows. Talking to all of the different people. Now, let's say you don't have that option right now. I want to share a couple of recent experiences that really reignited my passion for this hobby in the last week both of which took place online. And, and I don't even think, or at least I haven't voiced this to the people that were part of it. Um, to them, it might have just been another passing incident, but um, you know, I, I thought it really uh, was substantial here. So earlier this week, I was in a hobby-related discord with a small group of collectors. I figure most of you already know more about discord than I do, but it's basically a chat room. And uh, one of the users, who's named Steve, a.k.a. Frisbee Steve, 
Um, which, by the way, I feel like all of my hobby friends are named Steve now. But um, Steve said, hey, I really enjoyed learning about Slick Leonard as part of your show. If you have a chance, I'd like to see some of your Slick Leonard cards. And um, I happened, I was on my desktop, and I happened to have most of those scanned in already. So I was dropping files in, and I was explaining the significance of each card along the way. And as I was going into the albums to get these cards, I would see other cards, and it was bringing back all of these memories from you know, how I acquired them or writing to these athletes. And uh, that was a lot of fun. And that led to a voice chat I did with three or four people where I got to share my screen and, and I actually pulled up my Flickr albums because I wanted to show them a particular card. Well, you know, as I had that album open, they were asking me about certain cards. So I kind of ended up running them through that album. And I really enjoyed that. You know, it, it, it's nice looking at them, but it was nice to talk about the significance of each one of these cards um, and, and telling them, you know, talking about those things to people that appreciate them. And even though it was on the computer, it felt a lot more um, human than something like Instagram or Twitter. Um, so much so, I, I think I might try to do that with some of these player and team collectors I have on in the future. You know, I might, we might pull up, uh, do a, a screen share, and I might say, hey, take me through a couple of your albums. Tell me about these cards. Um, you know, I've been in this thing over two and a half decades and I'm really thankful that I'm still finding new ways to enjoy cards. And long story short, that's not possible without hitting the reset button every once in a while. So I hope that my experiences that I just talked about and some of my thoughts resonated with you. Um, so there you have it. Those were some of my thoughts that have been swirling in my head for a couple of weeks now. I appreciate you taking the time to listen. I hope I was able to get the main point across in all of that. Take a deep breath. Take a few moments every now and then to reflect on what it is you enjoy about this hobby. Why are you doing this? What do you need to do to keep enjoying it? And maybe there was something I said today that resonated with you. Maybe my responses um, you know, sparked something inside of you. Feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under the handle at Wax Museum Podcast. I'm also on Twitter under at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed today's episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site. This is very simple. Before you go to purchase or bid on an item, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow that click. Um... You know, I know a lot of you, I would venture to say like 90 to 95% of you, maybe even higher, use eBay. That's how we build a lot of our collections. You're going to purchase there anyway. It doesn't cost you anything extra. It's a simple way to support the show. But if multiple people do that, it really helps me out. So once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe rate and review on itunes spotify or google podcast hit up the podbean site for a link to the merch store tag taco bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos and until next time this is the wax museum podcast